there, Green Future Growers. Thanks for joining us today. If you're new to the show, I hope you'll subscribe on iTunes or your favorite Android app. And let's get growing. Welcome to the Organic Gardener podcast today. I am just like, it's Tuesday, January 22nd, 2019. And I am super excited because I have somebody who is passionate about social justice as much as I am. And she's used her um, life and skills to really connect um, social justice and food justice together. So I think you are going to love this interview as much as I am. And so from Soul Fire Farm in New York, here's Leah Penniman. So welcome to the show, Leah. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. Well, I'm just tickled. So go ahead and tell listeners just like a little bit of your background and about yourself and um, maybe talk about how you're committed to ending racism and injustice in the food system or just, I don't know, just give us a little background first, maybe. <laughs> Definitely. I would be happy to. So I've been farming for 22 years and I'm the founding co-director of Soul Fire Farm, uh, which is a little community farm uh, led by black, indigenous, Latinx folks up in the mountains of Grafton, New York. And I com- I just have been in love with farming pretty much my whole life and really see it as a foundation for social justice and environmental stewardship. So, you know, here at Soulfire, we are, as you mentioned, committed to ending racism in the food system. And part of that is about what we do with our food. You know, we grow on about five acres here and all that food gets boxed up and brought to the doorsteps of folks who need it most in the community, especially refugees and immigrants and, and people with an incarcerated loved one. And then we also do training programs that center the needs of black, indigenous, Latinx folks who want to farm. And we've help to cultivate about 500 new farmers over the years through our programs. So, well, so many questions I could ask there. Like, I guess my first question is like, if you're donating all this food, how are you supporting your organization? Like, where are you getting your money from? Or do you sell some food too? So I didn't hear the last question, if you want to repeat it. Oh, oh sorry. Uh, so I guess I was wondering, like, if you're giving away so much food, like, how are you surviving? Like, do you get donations or, like, do you sell some food, too? Or, like, where where do you get your income from? Oh, that's a great... Or is this, like, a volunteer program? That's a really valid question. So we started out as a family farm, a business, and uh, continue to be committed to maintaining a viable business because it would be a little strange to be training the next generation of farmers to have a farm that relies on donations or, you know, some slush fund from a parent or a grandparent. So we don't do that. We actually use a sliding scale model. So people who earn more money, um, who have more wealth, pay more, and people who don't have money pay less. And we have a balance of members in our CSA such that um, it all evens out and the farmer gets market value for the produce. Uh, We do also have a nonprofit branch to our work, and we get some donations for that, and that helps fund our education programs, both the farmer training that I mentioned, as well as the youth programs we do and public education. We, you know, travel all around the region and the country sharing uh, information about food justice. So, I love all this, and it's such a great day for us to be talking because yesterday, this weekend, was the Indigenous March in Washington DC where there was that Native American elder and the kids from Ken or Oklahoma, Kentucky, I forget where they were from. Um had like that big um 
I don't know what you want to call it, some kind of interaction that's been like all over the media. And just it's such a time because our government shut down over immigration. And here you are doing this great work of training immigrants and helping people become sustainable farmers. And so um, I just uh, I think this is such a timely topic. So. I don't know. Where do you want to start? Like how, how, I I guess, well, I always kind of actually start the show asking about your very first gardening experience. Like were you, I always kind of start the show asking about your first gardening experience. Like were you a kid? Were you an adult? Like what'd you grow? Where were you at? You know? Yeah. So I I didn't go up. I did not grow up gardening. Um, I did grow up in a rural area and was friends with the trees for sure. Um, Our family was, one of the few, sometimes the only brown skin families in town. And so in this rural conservative area, it meant that we didn't have a lot of friends. You know, we got bullied and taunted. And so we spent quite a bit of time outside and the, and the forest became our first and closest friend. Um, so because of that relationship with nature, when it was time to get a summer job as a teen, I went and um, got a job at the food project in Boston where my mom was living and from, you know, that very first time that I experienced the satisfaction of using a stirrup hoe uh, to clean up a row of cilantro, I was just completely hooked. And and the food project was really neat because not only did we grow food on about 40 acres, but we ran an urban farmer's market. We did gardening in the city um, on vacant lots. And we also served food in soup kitchens. So it was a, a neat intersection of social justice and, you know, working with the earth directly. Fascinating. So I love the way you talk about just getting hooked by cleaning up a row of cilantro. So then what were your next steps? Like, how did you start this Soul Fire Farm? Did you, you're one of the founders? Yeah. So Soul Fire Farm started with just our family. So my partner, Jonah and I, and our two children who were very young at the time, newborn Emmett and two-year-old Nishima, you know, we were living in the South end of Albany, New York, which the government terms a food desert because it's a high poverty area without grocery stores. Um, My mentor, Karen Washington, teaches us to use the word food apartheid instead because it's a human created system that results in certain folks being hungry and other people's having enough to eat. But anyway, so we were living on this block and the only way we could get vegetables was to join a farm CSA that was super expensive and walk over two miles to pick up the vegetables. And our neighbors didn't have even that luxury to do that. And so there was just no fresh food on the block. And when people found out that we knew how to farm, they started encouraging us to start a farm for the people that would get fresh food to that neighborhood. And so we did. You know, we purchased this inexpensive, highly eroded land up in the hills that nobody wanted. Um, And it took to, you know, build a house and build up the soil and put a driveway in and all that before we were able to open the farm in the fall of 2010. So now like, so I am from Long Island originally. So to me, but like Albany, so like this must be like a suburb or it's actually like city urban. <laughs> Albany like you talk about the capital of New York state, <laughs> but yeah, we're, um, we're about three and a half hours North of New York city. So Albany is the capital. And then we're another 40 minutes outside of Albany. So it's a suburb of Albany. It's kind rural. Of. It's not a suburb. It's rural. It's trees. Okay. And then how do you get your food to market then? Mm. Well, uh, we do 
Everything is through a CSA, so a farm share. It's an idea that comes out of Booker T. Watley's model. He's a black ag professor from Tuskegee University back in the day. And the idea is that people are members. And our commitment is, because a lot of folks don't have transportation, is to get it right to their doorstep. So we provide uh, that delivery service in Albany, which is about 40 minutes away, and Troy, which is a smaller city, 25 minutes away. And we're able to deliver to 100 families. It takes us five or six hours to get all those deliveries made. And and then do you like and so you were saying some people pay full price for the and it's like a, on a sliding scale the CSA and that covers the delivery charge I too. I can't hear you right now, so I'm just waiting for it to come back. Mm, I'm sorry. Uh, I wonder what we could do to make it work better. Do you want to try a Zoom call? Can you hear me? I guess. I'm just curious, like you have so much going on in such a small space and you have chickens there too. How many chickens do you have? <laughs> we do have a lot going on. So we raise chickens for eggs and meat. Uh, we just have a small uh, demonstration flock of chickens for the eggs, 25 to 50. But for meat, we raise about 300 birds a year in batches of 50. Um, and we do that in such a way that the learners who come to our farm for our week-long intensive trainings get a chance to learn the process of humane uh, chicken harvesting and, and pasture-raised meat. And so uh, we time it so that folks get that experience when they're here. And of course, that's in addition to, you know, the acres of vegetables and fruits and herbs that we have growing here at the farm. Oh, it just sounds amazing. Um, so... Well, I don't know. Do you want to tell us about something that grew well last season? I mean, you're not really growing anything right now in the middle of winter, right? <laughs> not too much. I mean, we have a few things that are wintering over in the high tunnel. But um, let's see. What was I excited about this year? Um, so many things. I mean, it's kind of an unconventional thing to be excited about. But the horseradish crop was really amazing. Um, and it's interesting because a lot of the crops that we grow, we focus on African-American, African diasporic indigenous crops. Um, horseradish, we actually grow for a Jewish market. My family's also Jewish. And uh, for folks who don't know, in the springtime during the holiday of Passover, we use the horseradish in ceremony to remind us of the bitterness of slavery in Egypt and, and so on. And so we grow that for our Jewish community. And something I love about horseradish is that really no matter what you do to it, you can put it in the most waterlogged, or, you know, clay soils, hack it up, and it just keeps growing. And that reminds me of the tenacity that we need in these challenging times. Cool. We have horseradish growing, um, but we've never really dug it up or ate it. Like, uh, <laughs> it's definitely growing in like a spot where nothing else really has grown and it's still there getting bigger. So um, for sure, that's great. Well, how about something exciting or different that you're going to try next year that you're like can't wait to do well something that we've been trying to grow for a couple of years and we've never succeeded with but i'm really committed is culantro uh, which is an herb that grows almost like a weed in puerto rico and it's a very important ingredient in sofrito which is a kind of salsa it's a base that's used in a lot of puerto rican and caribbean cooking um, it's called epis in haiti but the culantro does not like upstate New York, but we're trying to get it to grow. Um, we affectionately term our high tunnel the North Carolina house because that's what the climate's like in there. And so we've been growing a lot of culturally important plants like pigeon pea and lemongrass and black peanut 
and things that, down there. So I'm, I'm super excited about making sure that we have the herbs that our community needs to make their traditional foods. Cool. Well, how about telling us about something that didn't work the way you thought it was going to last season or something that didn't work out so well? Oh, well, in our region, we had a really wet summer, um, excessively wet summer. And so, especially with our heavy clay, that meant that the curcubits were quite unhappy. So we suffered from some melon collapse and, uh, you know, the squash weren't super psyched about it either. Uh, but, you know, that's why we have a diversified farm because you win some, lose some. And so if you plant a lot of different things, you know, you hope that at least some of them are going to make it to harvest. So what are some like tips maybe you could give listeners? Because a lot of my listeners are like, my husband and I are trying to go from, well, our goal was always to grow all of our own food. And now we're kind of like trying to jump that curve to go to market. Like, do you have any tips for people who are starting out? Like two acres isn't that much land, but we have like a third of an acre that Mike has like, I've coined it the mini farm that he's planted. And that just seems huge to me. So two acres sounds even bigger. Like, do you have any tips for people that kind of want to make that jump from backyard gardener to market farmer? Sure. And, and yeah, you're right. With two acres, you can definitely do a lot, especially when you grow like we do really intensively and hand scale. You know, if you're growing row crops, two acres is nothing. Just tractor it up and you can do 10, 20, 30 acres, but yeah, for, for a hundred different type of types of veggies. And I would say just a little bit at a time, you know, we probably started with about a third of an acre and I was just doing it all by myself on Sundays and after school from time to time. Um, and then we expanded as our capacity and time expanded. And so, you know, bit by bit. And I think a lot of folks too are realizing that you don't have to grow a lot of everything. You can come up with your specialty. So maybe you keep your third acre home garden and then you, your commercial operation is just sauerkraut or it's just mushrooms or it's just honeybees so that you're, you're focusing that extra energy in one place instead of being too pulled in too many directions. Mm, I think that's perfect advice. Uh, I was just listening to like, I did this interview with um, these guys on Long Island who were converting a farm from, um, you know, like traditional methods to an organic farm. And I was going through my notes and I noticed that he said like, pick 10, crops don't go crazy like <laughs> right. growing 27 varieties of tomatoes or you know all these different heirloom cucumbers or something like he was like you know find what you do find something that you do well and then expand on that so I think that's um really good advice and I think that's kind of what my listeners are going to want to hear because like I said a lot of them have big backyard gardens like we do but even making the jump from a backyard gardener to growing enough food for us, like we're still struggling. My mom's like, why don't you sell at market? Why don't you sell this? And I'm like, we're barely getting enough potatoes <laughs> right. to get through an entire year. Like, you know, the stuff that we have left over is hard to take to market. Like one year I took a cooler full of Swiss chard. And I couldn't hardly give that stuff away and just, but that was really all we had extra for sale. So Anyway, this is kind of the part of the show that we call getting to the root of things already. So like, do you have like a least favorite activity to do that you have to kind of force yourself to get out there and do? Hmm. Well, I've tried to eliminate those as much as possible. I mean, I really do love a lot of the tasks that many people don't love. Like the more rigorous and sweat inducing and challenging it is, the more I like it, like hand digging beds and you know, moving heavy things around. The thing that I didn't like that we did for a couple of years is um, we had a winter operation and, and mind you in our climate, you know, for example, yesterday it was negative 26 with the wind chill. So a winter operation is no joke. And we were doing, um, you know, cut greens in the tunnel 
and that's just miserable. You know, there was one moment when I had frozen fingers and I'm trying to bag stuff up for market and I look around and realize that the bears and the deer and the owls and everybody else is smart and they've gone into hibernation and here I am trying to farm, you know? <laughs> so in so upstate New York where like yeah. you're colder, I always laugh because when I go to visit my mom in the winter or I don't laugh, they all laugh at me because I think it's freezing. I'm like, and we're in Northwest Montana, but the cold off the coast is just so much. And I know Albany's not as close to the coast as Long Island, but it's just a totally different cold out there than it is here. But on the flip side, I wouldn't even, I can't imagine cutting greens at this time of year. Right, <laughs> right. So needless to say, we did that for a couple of years and we don't do that anymore. We dedicate our winters to our community education work. Well, do you want to talk about that a little bit? Because you kind of mentioned at the beginning and then we didn't talk about that much again. Yeah, definitely. You know, so, that sounds like that's a big part of your program. It's huge. And that's the main thing that I do at this point. You know, we have someone else managing the farm and a farm team. Um, so, you know, folks may or may not know, but, you know, in this country, farming, commercial farming is actually the whitest profession. And it got that way over time. You know, farm workers are about 85% Latinx and Hispanic folks. And in the early 1900s, we had a, a good diversity of the people who were managing farms. But that's eroded, and it, and it isn't by historical accident. It has a lot to do with discrimination by the federal government against black farmers and taking away indigenous people's lands and having laws that are really unfair to farm workers that kind of keep them in a state of subjugation. And there's a lot of political stuff to say about that, but the way that we're engaging is we're trying to make as many opportunities as possible for farmers, people who want to be farmers who are from these marginalized communities. And so that means education programs on the farm, you know, trainings and mentorship, providing resources, helping connect people to land and jobs. And so that's, that's really the main thing that I'm doing with my time is making sure that this next generation of farmers is getting what they need so they can make a life on land. So do you have any tips for like things that work good, like how to set up an internship or like how do you find these people and like things, you know, things that have worked well or mistakes that you would like tell people not to try? Because <laughs> having like people come work on your farm is probably a, you know, a management issue and like sometimes it goes really well and other things like don't work as well. Absolutely. Yeah. So I would say definitely get involved in a network. Like there's something called the craft network. There's a few others. Most regions will have one for farms that want to take apprentices or volunteers and they help give you best practices. Cause I definitely don't recommend just having any person come to your farm. And, and that goes both ways, both in terms of making sure that, you know, you're set up to give them a positive experience, uh, to pay them a fair wage, to give them adequate housing. All of that's really important as well as making sure that they're going to fit in and really be supportive of your operation because sometimes having someone is more work than, than what they're able to contribute. So, you know, at this point, as far as volunteers, we just have certain volunteer days that people can come and we make sure we have enough experienced folks set up to manage those teams. And if people are gonna be on the farm on an ongoing basis, we're hiring them as staff. And so um, that's sort of the solution we found, but every farm is gonna find its, its own way that works. Um, I like that though, making sure you have enough experienced people there on volunteer days, because that's something 
people have talked about being successful if like on the volunteer days that they're really focusing on teaching and helping and not really like trying to be like, oh, well, the volunteers are here. So I'm going to go over to this other area and get this work done that I've wanted to be getting done that like on the days the volunteers are there to really focus on what the volunteers are doing, making sure you're providing them with education and like, you know, a good lunch or something and making it a really nice day, but focusing on, you know, really more managing than I'm thinking, oh, well, the volunteers are coming. I can go do my own private project. And like, <laughs> exactly. In the classroom, I know how that goes too with kids. Like, you know, they say, you know, go teach your reading group and keep the other kids going. And for me, it's always easier to manage kids in groups when I'm focused on managing the group. So I, I think it's probably a very similar situation. It's anyway. so true. That's the time you need to be more focused, right? Not less. Yeah. Uh well, on the flip side, back to like, what's your least favorite activity? What's your favorite activity to do in the garden? Like, what do you love to do the most when you get to get out there? Oh, I love almost everything. I would say, though, the more gross motor skill stuff I really like. I like to dig beds. I like to weed, um, transplanting, direct seeding, you know, the things that are more fine detail, like picking bugs or harvesting not so much because I feel like I can't lose myself as much. You know, I really love farming on my own and I love the uh, letting my mind just run free while my body's really engaged with the work of tending the soil. Aww. You're so eloquent. I could just listen to you all day. Oh, so, that's kind of you. Leah, what's the best gardening advice you've ever received? Hmm. Well, or the best advice you. I ever received was actually not kind of in the practical tips realm of things. It was from one of my mentors, Karen Washington of Rise and Root Farm, and also the founder of the Black Urban Growers, a national network. And she was the one, she's the reason I'm still farming because I was honestly about ready to quit. I'd been farming um, all throughout my teenage years, was very passionate about it. I went to all the conferences, but quite frankly, I'd look around and I wouldn't see anyone who looked like me. It was a, a very white space. The presenters were white, all the authors on the table, um, sharing their books were white. And so I thought, did I choose the wrong thing? Did I miss the memo about where I'm supposed to be? Um, am I really welcome here? Do I have a place here? And Karen Washington was one of the few folks in that space. And she said, you know, don't give up. You're part of the returning generation of black farmers. And soon we'll have our own conferences, our own books, you know, we'll be able to lift up that narrative, but just hang in there. And, and she was really right. And she continues to be a close mentor and friend of, of mine today. So, you know, in some ways that message is universal. It's like, hang in there. So is there anything you would recommend to listeners that are listening that they could do to kind of help change things? Oh, absolutely. I mean, this you is something seem I'm very so solution solution oriented. <laughs> We're so solution oriented. I mean, that's the great thing about a problem that's so big like racism in the food system, you know that that's heart hurting farm workers and distributing land unfairly and not getting food to everyone who needs it. it the great thing is that there's so many points of of solution and there's so many different ways to get involved. So we've taken a lot of time to put together action steps on our website. So if you go to soulfirefarm.org slash take action, we have a whole list of things the community is asking for. And some of them are really simple and easy, like you know, volunteering for a farmer of color who might need some support with their website, all the way up to uh, visiting our reparations map, which is a tool where uh, the folks who've gone through our programs put up on the map things they need, whether it's land, a tractor, some technical assistance or support, and you can go ahead and, and check out the map and uh, offer something if you have it to a farmer who's trying to make it. 
Hmm. I'm going to have to check that map out and see if there's anything we can help with or. Oh, thank you. That would be uh, great. Do you. How about what's your favorite tool? Like if you had to move and could only take one tool with you, what could you not live without? Um, hands down, it would be the hoe, specifically the really big, heavy hose that they use in West Africa and Haiti. Um, and the reason I take the hoe is because you can use it for anything like primary tillage, forming beds cultivation, digging ditches, and, and it's also just a ton of fun to use. Cool. How about, do you have a favorite recipe you like to cook from the garden? Um, a few, but I would say the soup jumu is my favorite. It is the Haitian national dish, and it's made with a jumu pumpkin, which is a super tasty pumpkin uh, from the Taino people in the Caribbean. And this pumpkin was actually forbidden to the enslaved Africans. It was only eaten by the French colonizers in the island of Hispaniola. So after independence was fought and won, the uh, formerly enslaved people celebrated by making a soup out of this pumpkin, saying essentially, now we're free, we can eat the things we choose to eat. And so every year on the new year, uh, which is Independence Day, we, we make the soup jumu and we share it with our friends and community members. That's interesting. How about a favorite internet resource? Like, where do you yeah. like to surf on the web? Well, to be honest, I don't do much web surfing just because my schedule is pretty ridiculous. <laughs> so if I come across things, it's usually... <laughs> I think it's hard to look on the internet, too. It's usually because something, you know, came across a listserv. So I'm part of, like, the Heal Food Alliance listserv and the U.S. Food Sovereignty Alliance. National Black Food and Justice Land. So people will, are kind enough that they will post relevant articles and things to these lists, and then I, I don't have to scroll myself. Well, that's a good recommendation right there, like some of those listservs. Uh, that's why I like podcasting, because I'm always like, who has time to watch a video? Exactly. <laughs> and if I'm reading a book, I want like the actual book. Like I don't want to be on my computer. I do read quite a bit. So, which leads into the next question. Do you have a favorite book or magazine or anything that you can recommend? Oh my goodness. I love to read. Um, I would say my all-time favorite book is Susan Wall Kimmerer's Braiding Sweetgrass, because like me, she is a scientist and gardener, plant lover, and has a deep spiritual connection to the earth. And she manages to weave all those, all those things together in her beautiful book. You know, I wanted to read that when it first came out, and then I kind of forgot about it. I'll have to go check that out again. Oh, it's worth it. It's amazing. Yeah, I've heard it's really, really good. Well, how about like any business advice for listeners on maybe how to sell extra produce or get started in the industry? You know, we kind of touched on this a little bit. Yeah, we did. But I think what's so important is knowing your market. I think one of the reasons that we didn't struggle so much with, with that aspect is because we started a farm based on community interest and stated community need. So our neighbors were telling us we need doorstep delivery of vegetables. And so that's what we did. And so, you know, sometimes that's called market research for us. It's community building, but however you approach it, finding out what is actually needed and then building your business around that is a good first step. You know, I don't, you know, and it's sometimes when I'm doing an interview, it takes a little while for things to sink in for me because I'm like trying to keep track and keep notes. But like, I don't know that anybody else has ever talked about a CSA that delivers to actual people's homes. And I would think in some ways, I've always thought I wouldn't make a good CSA customer because I don't have to be somewhere Tuesday afternoon at four o'clock every week on so-and-so time. So even if you're doing those deliveries on the same 
day, it does give you a little bit of flexibility, whereas like you're delivering, you're going to be at this house at this time, or like, does it not? Because I guess if it takes five to six hours, but like, how do you harvest all that food? Do you harvest some of it the day before? Or, like, oh, absolutely. Oh, yeah. I mean, it depends on the time of year, how heavy the harvest is. So we harvest on Tuesdays usually, but sometimes we harvest on Monday and Tuesday. So we're putting things in the cooler. And then Wednesday morning, we box everything up into you know, separate, a separate box for each of our customers and bring it out around noontime back at five or six. So we give the customers a range of times that we're going to be there. We'll say, you know, we usually get to your neighborhood between one and two. So make sure that you're home or that you leave a cooler or you have a shady space for, space for us to leave the food. Oh, that's a good question. What do people do about that? Uh, leave a cooler. That's a great idea. But I just think that whole doorstep to doorstep, you don't have any like bulk delivery, like we're going to be at this one place at this one time and you can come pick it up. It's just, you go to every single house. Yes, that's right. Huh. Well, I hope that's keeping listeners, like giving them some ideas. And it's funny because just yesterday I was talking to this woman who um, started out her business doing almost everything on a bike cart um, oh, that's awesome. about 15 years ago. But she said they even like called all the tents and things to the farmer's market. Like she lives in Boise, Idaho. And she said they just, and that was like a two mile ride from her farm to the market. And just, they did almost everything bike powered um, in the beginning. And so, but I think that's just a great idea that hopefully some listeners will come up with that. Maybe that's a better suggestion if you're actually delivering it to people. Um, right. well, here's my final question. It's kind of a doozy. If <laughs> there's one change you would like to see to create a greener world, what would it be? And I'm sure your answer is going to maybe have something to do with food justice, but anyway, if there's like a charity or organization you're passionate about or project you'd like to see put into action, like what do you feel is the most crucial issue facing our planet in regards to the environment, either locally, nationally, or on a global scale? And really, I mean, I guess that's <laughs> your whole life is dedicated to my final question. It is. So I'll do my best to just choose one thing because obviously all these issues intersect, but something that's on my mind that's more on the environmental side of things is climate chaos. And something that's so amazing is that the soil itself is the biggest reservoir of carbon that we have. And if everyone in the world uses, used indigenous regenerative farming practices, we could sequester all that extra carbon and essentially halt climate change in its tracks. And so I think the work of gardeners, the work of farmers is really intertwined with the survival of the planet. We need to be doing low and no-till, you know, cover cropping, permanent raised beds, agroforestry, all of these techniques. And not just doing them ourselves, but also returning the land to indigenous people all around the world who know how to do this best and who've had their land taken away. So it's about power and control and democracy as much as it is about what we're actually doing with the soil once we have it in our hands. So have you ever thought about running for politics, like becoming a politician, like actually getting into the government part of making this change? Or do you feel you have more effect as like somebody who's running kind of like an NGO or a nonprofit type of organization or a <laughs> Well, I appreciate that vote of confidence. You know, I feel like I definitely have at least a decade more in this work of uh, what I call creating alternative institutions. It's one of the three prongs of creating a new world. Like of course, working from the inside in politics is, and that reform is very important. Working from the outside, doing protest and resistance is important. And then building the alternatives that we're working toward is important. I, all three need to happen. And right now, my expertise is very much in building that world that we want to see. And so as long as I'm doing a decent job at it, I'm going to stick with it. 
And you seem like you are doing a fantastic job at it. So, and I, I just think it, it does really fit well with your positive solution-minded personality that we don't get to see very often, um, it seems like, out there. Well, well how about, you. yeah, I, I'm just delighted to talk to you. I could talk to you all day long. Uh, do you have an inspirational tip or quote to help motivate listeners to reach into the dirt and start their own garden? Ooh, well, I'll give you, I'll leave you with a quote from Fannie Lou Hamer, who's well known for her work with the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party, but folks don't often know that she was also a farmer and gardener and started a really big co-op back in the 60s called Freedom Farm. So a quote from her is, when you have 400 quarts of greens and gumbo soup canned for the winter, no one can push you around or tell you what to do. That's excellent. Uh... Well, tell listeners about like your website and how they connect with you or find you. And uh, if you have anything else that we haven't talked about that you want to bring up. No, this has been great. Uh, folks can reach us at www.soulfirefarm.org and information about all of our programs and volunteering and the reparations map is all online. And we're also on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Soul Fire Farm. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for sharing with us today, Leah. And just, I think listeners are really going to love this and just um, be inspired by all that you're doing and this great organization that you've built. And I definitely can encourage listeners to go to their website and check out like the pictures and the stories and see your kids and just um, all the cool things that you've got going on there and maybe attend some of the events because it looks like you have a ton of events going on. Well, thank you. I do hope to see some listeners at an upcoming stop for the book tour. I mean, wow, you are really, you really have a lot going. No, wait, what's the book tour? Did you just write a book? Oh, right. My publisher will kill me if I don't mention that. So absolutely, everyone should check out our newly released book. It's called Farming While Black, Soul Fire Farms Practical Guide to Liberation on the Land with Chelsea Green Publishing. And you can get it wherever fine books are sold. And what I love about this book that we put together is that it's very practical. It has all kinds of gardening tips from, you know, how to save seeds to how to plan your market garden. Um, but it also has this neat history around the contributions of black farmers to sustainable ag and ways that you can help create a more just food system. Cool. Yeah, there's like a bunch of book talk dates and you're going to be at the Midwest Organic Sustainable Education Organic Farming Conference and you're lecturing at the University of New Hampshire and just all sorts of places. I see your schedule is totally booked up through June and even some things into like all the way to next November. So um, definitely go get the book. Don't forget to leave a five-star review on Amazon and just, I love Chelsea Green Publishing. They're like, I get their email and I always open it when I get it because I'm excited to see their books. I think they are, especially now that Rodell's gone. So congratulations yes. for getting that done. So thank you. Well, thanks Leah for dealing with my technology problems and have a great day. You have a wonderful day as well. Take care freegardencourse.com 
Uh, Mike and I have developed some lessons to help you create your very own organic oasis. We'll guide you through the steps to build your perfect natural landscape, an edible earth-friendly yard, a sustainable deep bed garden, or even start a small profitable market farm. We'll show you how to save time, lower your produce bill, collect usable data, eat healthy nutritious food with minimal labor, um, use the most effective and efficient production methods currently being used in backyard gardens as well as market farms, and maybe even help you find some profitable markets. We've designed it to save you time, lower your produce bill, and help you eat healthy, nutritious food. Um, there's checklists, there's outside reading, video assignments. Uh, you can join the online Facebook community where there's lots of people from around the world to help you get your garden started today. So remember, freegardencourse.com. Hey there, green future growers. Would you like your friends and neighbors to create an organic oasis too? Would you like others in your area to learn about earth-friendly practices for their gardens and yards? If so, we would love it if you would share the Organic Gardener podcast with your local community or college radio station today. Thanks again for listening and remember, grow local. Grow local.